everyone, welcome back to Latter-day Takes. On today's episode, that is most surely going to get me canceled. I talk pretty much all about Elder Holland's, uh, I don't know, speech, talk, whatever, uh, that he did at the BYU conference earlier this week. And the uproar that took place following his words... And I give my take on that. I give my thoughts. And spoiler alert, it's not as complex as you might initially think. That's at least my opinion, right? But anyway, uh, I hope you all are having a great week, per usual. I know I say that every time, but I mean it. And I hope you're gearing up for a good weekend. I know I say that, I know I say that every time, but I also mean that. Uh, we're gearing up to the end of the, the month here. Uh, fall season is upon us soon enough. I guess we're still about... 25 days out but 24 whatever but regardless i hope you all are excited for it like i am football season everything let me know what you think of this podcast would love to know your feedback i uh i get a healthy amount of feedback uh mostly positive but some negative i'm counting on this one uh being a being a solid combination of both just know that it is never my intention to offend. It is almost always my intention to defend when it comes to topics like these because I truly believe in the church and the gospel. And it obviously isn't going to sit right with every single person in the world. If it did, then it couldn't possibly be true. That's how I see it, at least. Anyway, I hope you're all doing well. I love you all. Have a great end out to your week. And I will catch y'all next week. Mormons are my favorite. They're my favorite. Yeah, okay. They're absolutely yeah. my favorite. All Mormons are nutty Mormons. Mormons are the nicest cult of all time. Beautiful. And these Mormons are so nice. Everybody's so nice. <laughs> Everybody's so nice in Utah. Just being a Mormon's nutty. Mormons are really nice people. Totally nice. They are the yeah. best cult. My favorite religion is Mormons. They're the nicest people. Shout out to the Latter-day Saints. All right. So before I get into the title of this podcast, you know, Elder Holland's remarks down at BYU recently, earlier this week, I believe on Monday, I wanted to go over a couple things I learned this week, actually, just through scripture study and whatever else, just other experiences. So since uh, this is my podcast, I am taking the liberty of sharing my thoughts with you. So I hope you take the time. Shouldn't take long. Be about 10 minutes of just kind of things I've learned this week. I might do this more often. We'll see. Something that came to mind the other day is that repentance doesn't have to take time. It just has to be transformative. A lot of that was kind of discussed at a come follow me gathering that I was at with some friends on Monday night. But we were kind of talking about time in that context and everything. And what do I mean by that, right? So what do I mean by repentance doesn't have to take time, it just has to be transformative? Well, obviously, sometimes transformation will take time, right? And I think, ultimately, we're constantly transforming ourselves, I think, over time, right? The goal is to become just like our Father in Heaven. So I don't think we're going to be doing that necessarily in an instant. I think that's going to be a constant evolution of progress and learning. But 
there are times when certain types of transformation, like repentance, may not take that much time. Now let me put that into context. It took Alma the Younger two days to have a, a huge transformation. All right? it, that's not where his transformation ultimately ended, right? That's basically where it started. He did have to continue fasting and praying, which he notes plenty of times in the scriptures from that moment, proselytizing, etc. You know, he was still on the path of making his calling an election made sure. But his major transformation of repentance took about two days, right? I think we can probably all agree on that. And I think maybe the church puts somewhat of an arbitrary time constraint on some things in terms of repentance. Like, you know, not being able to have your temple recommend for however many months, take the sacrament, things like that. Because everybody deals with its transformation aspect differently, right? You can't guarantee that everybody's going to take a certain amount of time. It's going to be different. So probably best and easiest to kind of just have a blueprint, kind of spirit of the law, than to state, well, let's just play everything by ear, right? If you openly state we're playing everything by ear, then that can, you know, leave a lot of holes out there and inexplicable decisions potentially, and people might take a lot of issue with that. Even though in some cases leaders definitely do this, and I think that's actually a good thing. I think the spirit of law has a strong role in leadership. Um, I think there's kind of a healthy combination of both that should take place personally, the spirit and letter of the law. Anyway, back to Alma the Younger. One thing I'd like to point out is that we may subconsciously look, and this is something I was discussing earlier this week with a friend as well, we may subconsciously look at Alma the Younger's experience to be slightly dismissive of the situation, considering it only took two days, right? Maybe we look at it that way. It's like, well, he only went through this for two days. You know, we could, I could probably do that for two days if I just grip my teeth, power through, make it happen, right? Um, but here's the kicker. Alma the Younger didn't know it would only take two days. Take a second to think about that. He had zero clue how long this was going to take. For all he knew, he was in the eternities of hell, right? I don't think God looked down at his situation and said, ah, just give him 48 hours and he'll figure it out. He'll come out fine on the other side. Ah, no. I think God intervened and let Alma the Younger do the rest. It was up to him, Alma the Younger, to confront and face his own challenges, his apostasy. And amazingly, he accomplished the transformation necessary to give him the foundation to set the tone for the rest of his life in only two days. Which brings me back to my original point, that repentance doesn't have to take time, it just has to be transformative. Something else I learned this week is that if we're waiting for God to guide us in everything we do, then we might be waiting for a while. So, what could I possibly mean from that? And I think you kind of find the answer in Doctrine and Covenants 58, 26 through 27. Um, I don't have the full scripture to share, and I share both those verses because they're actually, believe it or not, on my missionary plaque, which is ironic because I knew what the scripture meant, but I haven't really, I hadn't at that point lived what the scripture meant which is a very different thing, obviously. In these verses, it essentially is talking about, and it's, it's the quote that says, it is not meet for God to command in all things for the same as a slothful and unwise servant, right? It says that in one of the two verses, but it kind of goes on to talk about, you know, like this is up to us to make our decisions, right? God gave us a brain. It is a test. We have to take leaps of faith here and there, or else what else is it for? Um, 
I, I'm still learning how to implement this in my own life. I've found myself looking for promptings, signs, or whatever from God. Some sort of direction so that I can be sure this is what he wants me to do as opposed to me having not to confront it as directly and actually process not just my emotions, but the pragmatism of my decision. I can't help but think that God would love to tell us what to do all the time for our good, right? I think we see that in ourselves a lot, you know, raising children, which I don't do, obviously, but, you know, we're probably having to restrain here and there, I've seen it in other parents, from just constantly having to guide this child along the way and say, you know what, sometimes mistakes are good for him, or sometimes they just have to take this and do it on faith. He would love to do the same for us, but... As we're all aware, that wouldn't do much, if anything, for our growth. Sitting ourselves down and assessing the situation for what it is, implementing real intellectual honesty and humility is probably required before we really receive any direction. And even then, the direction might actually be that God is telling us to be true to ourselves and assess it honestly on our, on our own because he knows the decision that will come from that is going to be the decision we actually need to make. So, not to confuse you too much with that, but essentially we need to go move forward in faith with our decision, honestly approaching it, not just taking this haphazardly, not just saying, ah, well, we'll see how this goes, just kind of closing your eyes and blindly making a decision. I think he really wants us to look inside, be introspective, and once again, let me stress that intellectual honesty, which is being honest with yourself, right? Don't lie to yourself, because if you're lying to yourself, you're going to lie to God, and you're going to lie to everybody else, and it's never going to work out. But if you can truly be honest with yourself and look inside and say, I'm going to look at this situation and really try my best to make the decision that, not that not the decision that God wants me to make, that's not the only reason here, but the decision that's best for you, which is the decision God wants you to make, right? But we have that capability. That's what he's telling us in that in that verse, in, the, in, in Doctrine and Covenants section 58. And it's possible the confirmation won't come confirmation of our decisions that is won't come until much later right i mean we a lot of times it takes a while sometimes people don't see it in this life unfortunately but that's what faith is all about we might have to rely on that faith and the spirit to be reassured that our initial decision was the right one and so that's essentially what i mean is that if we're waiting for god to tell us every little thing to do then we're gonna be waiting for a while because we need to use our minds, the amazing minds he has given us. And that's something my mom has actually said growing up for a while to all of us as kids. She'd say, you know, one example she gave was talking with somebody about like, you know, maybe like this person in her experience was talking about specifically marrying somebody and saying, you know, like, I, I, I love her. I do. I want to be with her. But, you know, sometimes she... Or no, 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 it was the opposite. It was a woman who was going to marry this man, and she was in love with him, but she's like, I don't know, sometimes he has anger problems. Sometimes he kind of blows up. And this is while they were dating. And my mom just, in in classic Dr. Lily fashion, just says, all right, I got an idea for you. Why don't you stop praying and start thinking? God gave you a brain for a reason. Now use it. And that's exactly what I'm talking about here. And I think that's exactly what it says in Doctrine and Covenants 58. Right, And that's a funny way of putting it. Stop praying and start thinking. Because a lot of times we can think prayer is the safety net. 
right? It's really not our decision, so we don't have to face the consequences or the hardships that may come with this decision. We can always put that on God's lap and say, well, you're the one that told me to do this. That's why I did it. No, that's not how it works. We have to be honest with ourselves, assess the situation correctly, be very introspective, make a decision, and move forward with faith, and God will never lead us astray. Okay, so now comes the time for addressing Elder Holland's words at BYU earlier this week, which a few people have asked me what I thought about this. So I figured, you know, why not put it out there in the podcast anyway? And just, I don't ever try and make my thoughts a secret anyway. So here they are. I'm sure this will offend some people, and I'm sorry for those that it does, but at the end of the day, I cannot you know, depart from my own conviction. Now, with that said, there's conviction and there's opinion. And a lot of those times they'll be intermingled. So there may be times when my opinion might be based off of a foundation that you simply don't agree with. And if that's the case, then that's just, it is what it is. But at the end of the day, that doesn't mean we can't coexist and that we can't be friends, friendly. We can't be loving towards each other. I don't know. That's my little disclaimer. Because I hope you see that this is coming from as good of a place as I can try and make it. And I truly am trying to make it a good one. Um, Anyway, to get to the point, Elder Holland spoke at a conference at BYU. It seemed like it was kind of for administrators and faculty and things like that. And the biggest point that he was making was that basically BYU is kind of at a crossroads right now and that he's been starting to get these letters from some former BYU students some BYU alumna among others that are talking about the situation at BYU that kind of leaves them thinking this isn't the university that I recognize that I went to and you know what I can kind of relate to that to some degree for sure and I've even written about that I've spoken on it um BYU has changed in a lot of ways they seem to have allowed um, diversity of thought probably isn't the right way of putting it, but they seem to have allowed kind of straight up uh, counter thought to the gospel from from professors based off of what a lot of these professors are saying uh, and what they're teaching. And he gives an example actually of a... A woman, member of the church, who had gotten married at BYU, served a mission, and when she graduated BYU, she wrote in her post that she was leaving the church, and that she was thanking her professors at BYU for essentially leading her to the light, as I think kind of how she referred to it, talking about how she felt like it was the right decision, and they that they had guided her there. Not indirectly, but directly. And anyway, so... He cites a letter specifically, and in this letter, the writer states that some people in the extended community are feeling abandoned and betrayed by BYU. It seems that some professors, at least the vocal ones in the media, are supporting ideas that many of us feel are contradictory to gospel principles, making it appear to be about like any other university our sons and daughters could have attended. Several parents have said they no longer want to send their children here or donate to the school. Please don't think I'm opposed to people thinking differently about policies and ideas. I'm not. 
but I would hope that BYU professors would be bridging those gaps between faith and intellect and would be sending out students that are ready to do the same in loving, intelligent, and articulate ways. Yet I fear that some faculty are not supportive of the church's doctrines and policies and choose to criticize them publicly. I think there's been proof of that as well. There are consequences to this. After having served a full-time mission in marrying her husband in temple, that was, goes to that story that I was telling you about this lady. She credited BYU's program and its faculty with radicalizing of her attitudes and the destruction of her faith. So then Elder Holland's point from there is that, you know what? BYU probably needs to do a better job of being defenders of the faith. Now, a lot of people define that differently. And I personally that his his approach really resonates with me because I've spoken on this before I've I even mentioned it specifically in the context of the five Mormons you meet in Utah right uh the my rationale for a progressive Mormon or no I should say a moderate Mormon essentially what defines a moderate Mormon is their desire to love and be loved by everyone trumps their desire to defend the gospel and the faith that they stand for. And that's where they fall out of line, so to speak, is that they they have this conundrum because they're like, well, this person's telling me I'm not loving, and so if that's the case, then I better be loving first to their terms, which that's the caveat, right? Because their terms are often not the best terms, as opposed to being a defender of the faith, loving the gospel more, things like that. And he even talks about that. He articulates it in a way better than I ever could, and I'll get to that in a second. But I, I do believe that there's a lot of truth to that and that we do need to kind of maybe do a better job of standing up. Here's a funny part, though, that kind of gets to me in a way that is just, I just think it's so ridiculous. When you zoom out for just a second, like everybody just take off their political glasses for a second uh, these like these these victimization, self victimization that we see because it's become such a currency these days. This is the part that that kills me, and it's pretty comical, quite frankly. Um, I want to share a story though before I get to this part of Elder Holland's talk that came under fire for whatever reason. So this will seem tangential, but I promise you it's related. This is when I was younger. I was I think I was a student at BYU at the time. I don't remember all the details. Um, but BYU basketball was playing, I want to say San Diego State. I'm not sure. It could have been New Mexico. That's not really the point. But if you've been to a BYU basketball game, it's very likely that you've participated in this tradition or at least seen it firsthand, which is that, and I think a lot of universities do things like this, is that when an opposing player fouls out of the game, the student section and a lot of the fans will chant like, left, right, left, right, which which represent the steps that that player is making from where they fouled out to the bench, right? They're, 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 every step they make with their left foot, they say left, and then the right foot, they say right, so it's left, right, left, right, until they get to their seat, and once they get to their seat, they yell, sit down, right? It's just whatever, it's just to get in their head. It's, you see that all the time, it's things like that at basketball games all around the world. It's nothing special, it's nothing new. Um, this game had been particularly competitive near the end. An opposing player had fouled out, and BYU student crowd had followed up with their tradition, left, right, left, right. But this time it was different. And you see this every now and then. Opposing players kind of like to mess with the crowd, things like that. And it can be kind of fun sometimes. Um, 
Like some of them won't sit down forever or they'll try and sit down real quick so they won't be told to sit down or whatever, right? Um, the opposing players, are walk. he did walk around a little bit longer than normal. He eventually got to a seat, but instead of sitting down when he got there, he pretended to sit down and he shot right back up and flipped off the crowd so quickly you could barely see it. Honestly, I remember being there and I remember seeing him stand up and lift up his hand I didn't personally witness the middle finger live like that, but the reason why we knew he flipped off the crowd was because somebody got it on camera, you saw his middle finger, boom, flipped off the crowd. And he even ended up apologizing for it because obviously he got caught on camera and so it blew up. But that's not even really the point of the story. The point of the story, I mean, because whatever, like high testosterone, very competitive, like things like that happen all the time. I didn't care. Like it was... Like, it may have riled me up in the moment, but the thing that really struck me was how much reaction it got from, you know, the BYU fans, BYU students. And here's the thing, especially, and I even hate mentioning this website, Cougar Board, the worst website known to modern man. It's a fan message board for BYU fans, and my goodness, it's anonymous too. It's like... These people are the biggest clowns in the world because they're anonymous. And I, that's why I don't like, I'm not the biggest fan of anonymity online in general for that reason. But there was so much indignation and contrived rage from BYU fans, it became so exhausting to witness this. Like, it's like you have a huge faction of people that were just waiting for their moment to be victims. I actually think you see that a lot in society. A lot had, of them had mentioned how it's supposed to be a family-friendly atmosphere, right? It's a family environment. So how are they supposed to bring their kids to the game when they're opposing players flipping off the crowd? Like, how am I supposed to explain that? First off, the likelihood of you even witnessing that firsthand is very slim, or your kid. Secondly, your kid is going to witness that at some point in their lives, right? Maybe you weren't planning on it being at a BYU basketball game, but you know what? It's not the end of the world if you had to explain that situation to your child right it's just in other words my overall point is they're finding excuses to be victims because for whatever reason there there's some currency in that right it's human nature that we're waiting for our turn to be victims and when it comes here's the thing when it comes for anybody's time to be a victim they're really not suffering they become insufferable and that's what reminds me of a part of Elder Holland's comments that I'm getting at. So the comments that he makes that I'm referring to are what he referred to as a musket. So he says, he quotes Elder Oaks. Um, he specifically, it's Oaks and Maxwell that have made references to musket fire. And what he said was, in a way, Latter-day Saint scholars at BYU and elsewhere are a little bit like the builders of the temple in Nauvoo, who worked with a trowel in one hand and a musket in the other. Today, scholars building the Temple of Learning must also pause on occasion to defend the kingdom, I personally think. This is actually a quote from Elder Maxwell that Elder Holland is sharing. So this is, these aren't even Elder Holland's original words. And Elder Maxwell continues on to say, this, one, this is one of the reasons the Lord established and maintains the, this university. The dual role of builder and defender is unique and ongoing. Builder and defender, builder and defender, right? Trowel carrier in one hand, musket carrier in the other. I am grateful we have scholars today who can handle, as it were, both trowels and muskets. 
Then he shared Elder Oaks's quote in similar context. He said, I would like to hear a little more musket fire from this temple of learning. He said this in a way that could have applied to a host of topics in various departments, but the only one he specifically mentioned was the doctrine of the family and defending marriage as the union of a man and a woman. Little did he know that while many would hear his appeal, especially the school of family life, who moved quickly and visibly to assist, some others fired their muskets all right, but unfortunately didn't aim at those hostile to the church. A couple of straight rounds even went north of the point of the mountain, which I think he's referring to some people fired back at the church. Which brings me to the part that I just am. I, I just, there's been references to Elder Holland's uh, use of the word musket, quoting Elder Oaks and Elder Maxwell, or President Oaks, excuse me, and how he's advocating violence. And that is honestly hilarious to me. That is that is that, and that is one of the situations where it seems like people that really like glom on to that part of the message are just looking to be victims and saying he's actually calling for violence and have people that shoot muskets at us and it's like really i mean it's not like the guy said ar-15 it's not like the guy was like let's let's start shooting uh people that attack us is this, this victim mentality is just no good for anybody i think it drives us all crazy at the end of the day anyway the big point that elder holland is making throughout his whole speech talk, whatever you want to call it, is that BYU needs to go back, revert more back to its traditional ways, right? It's a university that represents the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is a private institution. It takes tithe money, things like that, which is actually one of my favorite things to joke about with Utah fans, that you're, you know, whether like you like it or not, if, if you're a full tithe, assuming you're a full tithe payer, which might be assuming a lot these days, uh, you're actually donating to BYU. So how about that, you know? Anyway, sorry, that's just side note a little tangent um his overall point being like let's not forget what our purpose is our purpose is not to be an institution just like all the other academic institutions our purpose is to be unique and peculiar which is something that i think a lot of us have lost these days because we're trying to fit into society we're trying to be accepted by societal standards and obviously if we do that and we're going to let the world dictate how we're supposed to act then we stop being unique in the eyes of god in the eyes of our heavenly father who has specifically set us up to be unique people now there was another uproar as well that people got into when elder holland had specifically mentioned the student who had come out over the uh i don't know you call it a pulpit in a graduation uh ceremony i don't know over in a graduation ceremony there was a BYU student valedictorian that had come out of the closet. I think we're all aware of that. That happened a few years ago. And Elder Holland hit on that specifically. He said uh, that basically students should not use that as a platform to get political, which the uproar from the LGBT community was obviously that he was calling it out that from an LGBT perspective, right? And that how dare he because, you know, like the church has worked so hard at you know helping those relationships and BYU has done so much in helping those relationships but here we are witnessing live Elder Holland setting up back those relations however many years but the point that I'm trying to make with this podcast is that what's new from all this so the church had released the family a proclamation to the world back in like 1995, I think, maybe even before that, 
Which, by the way, if you read that now, and the church actually released this today, uh, there would be an uproar. Uh, they would People would be trying to cancel the church, and maybe that would be the last straw for um, academics, institutions, just like stripping us of all sorts of certifications, things like that. Maybe BYU would no longer be recognized in the eyes of potential employers as a formidable institution. I don't know. I mean, I think there's only years away from that happening anyway, but... Um, the, the family proclamation of the world would basically be viewed as a radical document if it were to be released today in 2021. And I actually have some excerpts from there that I'd want to share because in the same vein of what Elder Holland is sharing, I don't think there's anything new. There's certainly nothing groundbreaking that he's saying in this in this talk if you go through and read it. Um, but if there is something new, point it out to me because as far as I can tell, everything he's saying is literally, it's, it's circling around the family of proclamation of the world. I mean, they start off right off the bat in that proclamation. They say, We, the First Presidency, and the Council of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, solemnly proclaim that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God and that the family is central to the Creator's plans for the eternal destiny of His children. I'm just going to read it, kind of let a couple excerpts. I'm not going to go through and read the whole thing. So what else? Another excerpt that I have, and maybe some of this is in order. I can't even remember, but... They go on to say, the first commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve pertained to their potential for parenthood as husband and wife. We declare that God's commandment for his children to multiply and replenish the earth remains in force. We further declare that God has commanded that sacred powers of procreation are to be employed only between man and woman, lawfully wedded as husband and wife. The family is ordained of God. Marriage between man and woman is essential to his eternal plan. Children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be reared by a father and a mother who honor marital vows with complete fidelity. We warn that individuals who violate covenants of chastity, who abuse spouse or offspring, or who fail to fulfill family responsibilities will one day stand accountable before God. Further, we warn that the disintegration of the family will bring upon individuals, communities, and nations the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets. I think we're starting to witness some of that firsthand right now. We call upon responsible citizens and officers of government everywhere to promote those measures designed to maintain and strengthen the family as the fundamental unit of society. So they're not even trying to keep this secret. They're saying we call upon, literally, we call upon the government to defend this as well, strengthen the family, bolster the family. And one thing I want to point out is this is not a specific attack on homosexuality or that lifestyle. It's a specific attack on anybody in any context, straight or gay or whatever, that attacks the family and by doing so may even be in a marriage and decides, you know what, I'm sick of this, I'm leaving, or whatever. And there are going to be plenty of people held accountable. It does not strictly say what the fate is of these people here, right? It's just talking about it from a societal perspective. It does not strictly say, and anybody that goes against this is going to hell forever to, f to burn, right? It doesn't make that point, right? That's, that's up for our Savior to decide. They've always made that clear. And that's what I've always loved about the approach of this gospel, is that essentially, we may feel judged, but I think that's us doing it to ourselves more than anything. Obviously, there are other people that do that on their own too. Don't listen to them right? The, the, you're going to be judged based on how you live the commandments according to how you know the commandments. And that's going to be different for everybody. So I'm not even really going to comment on that just besides the fact that I do believe that there is something to strengthening a society through the bonds of marriage and the foundation of a family. I think that's important to remember and remind ourselves. And I actually, to lend a little bit more credence to this, I have a close personal friend of mine who 
actually reached out asking if I was going to comment on this. Um, Elder Holland's uh, message, because he's he's an avid listener of the podcast. This friend happens to be somebody that has personally struggled with same-sex attraction, which I understand even saying struggling, by the way, is not the right way of putting it. But if somebody wants to say they're struggling with it or is something they battled with, that's up to them. That's their prerogative. Just because maybe you haven't is different, okay? Anyway, so this is what he had to say when he was asked about it. And this is actually him reaching out to me, sharing his thoughts that he had shared with somebody else, which I really appreciate because he, he puts it well, just exactly as I was thinking in the same lines. He said, there was nothing in his statement that was new. There was nothing controversial. Why is everyone shocked when the church reaffirms their eternal standards? Blows me away. Most of all, he called for love, which that's true. If anybody's going after Elder Holland for not being loving, they didn't read the whole talk. They didn't listen to it. And I'll even share a clip here at the end to close out the podcast episode to kind of show you kind of what his tone was there and all that. That includes for those, and this is back, back to my friend's message, that includes for those with while we differ, those with who we differ, but it also includes for the church from its own damn members, which is a statement I'm ashamed to have to make. It's a really good point as well. The premise of the backlash is, but the world is changing, and I want to scream back, you mean as foretold? We knew this was going to happen. We knew this was going to happen, but we're still changing with the world, apparently, right? That's my little editorial edition that I'm adding to my friend's message here. And he keeps going. He says, the gospel doesn't need to adapt to higher education. And as someone with four degrees in four fields, he does, I can vouch for that, being educated does not make you better or special. It means you know a bit about your one thing, not that you know anything at all about another field. Anyways, the bottom line is not, was Elder Holland wrong? When we don't understand a prophet who is speaking fully in his capacity as a prophet, the issue will always be, what do I need to learn in order to understand what the prophet has said? And then he finishes that up with saying, thank you for coming to my TED Talk, which is a funny, funny little note on there. But I, I agree with all that, right? That, and I love that last part. It's not, was Elder Holland wrong? When we don't understand what the prophet is fully saying, it's what do I learn from this? What can I glean from this? And that's how it always has been. That's what we've been told. And it's, I mean, it's frustrating. You're probably starting to hear that in my voice a little bit. Elder Holland didn't do anything wrong. This is all old news as far as i'm concerned we've changed as a society not the church not byu well byu has to some degree but that's all people acting out on their own that's not institutional as of yet thank goodness elder holland certainly hasn't changed the prophet hasn't changed we've tried to make strides positive strides in reaching out to that community because yes there have been some issues in the past which by the way might i add the church has never claimed to be perfect They've claimed the gospel is perfect. They haven't even claimed their interpretation of the gospel is perfect. But they do try their best. It's run by imperfect men. What do you expect? Mistakes will be made. And just because those mistakes are made has zero reflection on the veracity of, one, the Book of Mormon, the gospel itself, and that this whole gospel of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does, does contain the plentitude of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so a couple other things I do want to share from what Elder Holland had talked about as we kind of close out here. He says, for example, we have to be careful, you know, as we love others, as we try and bridge those gaps, that love and empathy do not get interpreted as condoning and advocacy, or that orthodoxy and loyalty to principle not to be interpreted as unkindness or disloyalty to people. 
I love those points. As near as I can tell, Christ never once withheld his love from anyone, but he also never once said to anyone, because I love you, you are exempt from keeping my commandments. We are tasked with trying to strive that same sensitive, demanding balance in our lives. And I love what he says there. I've actually tried to articulate that point before, but of course, Elder Holland does it better than I ever could, is that when we're told to be loving, that's one thing, but when we're told that our love isn't accepted, that doesn't mean we need to then change our love to be accepted. Because it's always going to be conditional. And we have a hard time agreeing, apparently, on what love means a lot of times, especially in today's society. And I'm starting to see that a lot more. I saw that on Instagram today from a few posts of people saying, specifically, one post that I saw said, To all the people who say you can love members of the LGBTQ plus community while actively fighting against their rights, no. Which, I don't know what it means to fight against their rights. I'm not I'm not sure about that. Um, I'm not... And this is where my naivety may come into play. I'm not sure where their rights end and others begin. As far as I know, from a societal perspective, they seem to have the same exact rights that everybody else does. Not That was not always the case, but obviously even the church in, in some instances has stumped for their own rights. I remember specifically, I want to say back in like 2005-ish, there was a law that was going to, the church even promoted that made it so if you were in a civil, like in a union, to like homosexual couple and one of them died that that person who died wouldn't even have the choice to give all of their possessions and all everything they owned to their partner and yeah that was terrible and the church even recognized that they were like that's not that that's that's a basic human right right that was a huge oversight on from our society's standpoint so i don't know what they mean by the rights to be honest but anyway this post goes on and says no you advocate for the people you truly love I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I think Christ's love was perfect, but I don't think he advocated for everybody. Right? He died for everybody. But in order to take advantage of that atonement comes conditions that we change. Right? It's not that he died for us and for that then we're just saved regardless. No, like our actions actually matter. We have to continue to transform ourselves. Before I close out here with uh, Elder Holland's message, part that I liked, that really does, to me, at least show a lot of his empathy and his true love for everyone, I stumbled across this scripture, actually just reading this morning. It's in Alma 2430, and it's the part in the Book of Mormon when Aaron, Omni, and Himner uh, get out of prison, and they baptize a ton more of the Lamanites, right? It was after uh, King Lamoni and Ammon had come to break them out of prison, essentially. And a lot of the Lamanites convert. And they're like classic Lamanites, like descendants of Laman and Lemuel Lamanites. And there are two groups in particular that do not. And those were dissenters from the Nephites, essentially. The Amulonites and the Amalekites, who, like, only one of the Amulonites converted, which I thought was fascinating. I wonder who that one Amulonite was. They hated the Nephites so much. And this is what one of the prophecies was that we get from the Book of Mormon. And thus we can plainly discern. And from what I've heard, when it says, and thus in the Book of Mormon, it's like, you better listen. And thus we can plainly discern that after a people have been once enlightened by the Spirit, referring to the Amulonites and the Malachites, because they had they had that light in their lives. They were Nephites at one point. Enlightened by the Spirit of God and have had a great knowledge of things pertaining to righteousness and then have fallen away into sin and transgression they become more hardened and thus their state becomes worse 
than though they had never known these things. And I love how that's put, and I think we're seeing that a lot with a lot of members of the church, progressive members of the church in some in some regards, um, and in some regards, ex-members of the church. And I think what we're just seeing is cognitive dissonance on full display. These people are having a hard time acknowledging that what they're doing, that deep down they know it's wrong, and so they become more hardened, and they become more hateful. And so they think, well, the only way for this to work is to get to change. I must change the system because I don't want to change myself. I don't know. Those are just my own thoughts. Once again, that's that's my opinion, right? So you may disagree with that. All right, I'm going to close out here with Elder Holland's part of the talk that I liked. And hopefully his empathy is on full on display for you like it was for me. And with that, we'll go ahead and close out and kind of have an a-traditional ending here to the podcast. In that spirit, let me go no farther before declaring unequivocally my love and that of my brethren for those who live with this same-sex challenge and so much complexity that goes with it. Too often, the world has been unkind, in many instances, crushingly cruel to these, our brothers and sisters. Like many of you, we have spent hours with them. We have wept and prayed and wept again in an effort to offer love and hope while keeping the gospel strong and obedience to commandments evident in every individual life. 